Welcome to Bookends, a virtual book club brought to you by the Team Approach. I'm your host, Susan Stamm, and this year on Bookends, we will focus on the topic of personal development. And we'll begin today with my guest, Bill George. Bill is the author of True North and the co-author of True North Groups, A Powerful Path to Personal and Leadership Development. To access today's podcast or any of our programs, visit www.bookendsbookclub.net. And be sure to check out our resource blog for free chapters and materials provided by authors featured on our program. Bill George, welcome to Bookends. Nice to be with you, Susan. So let's begin with your earlier book, True North, which outlined your model for finding True North, which we'll get to a little bit later. You know, there's so much written about leadership today, and there are so many ideas about what leadership looks like. I particularly enjoyed reading David Gergen's remarks in the foreword of this book about his early life assessment that the smartest people would, of course, make the best leaders. Would you comment on this and talk about how his late revelation ties to our need for true north? That's a great question to start with. I think one of the great myths uh, about leadership and actually mistakes is that somehow uh, it's tied to successful leadership is tied to IQ. In fact, leadership scholars have been looking for the traits, characteristics uh, of successful leaders for uh, decades and have done uh, well over a thousand studies of it unsuccessful and determining what are those traits and characteristics, and we came to the conclusion that there weren't any, that it really had to do with one's, uh, uh, if you will, uh, emotional intelligence and character, and that's what, uh, and, and life stories. And uh, Dan Goldman's done a great deal of research. He's a father of emotional intelligence and looking at EQ, as he calls it, versus uh, IQ, and found that above a level of 120 uh, IQ, which is uh, something almost all leaders have, there's really no correlation uh, to speak of between IQ and successful leadership. Uh, I would assert that at too high level of IQ, it might even be inverse because uh, people uh, focus too much on uh, their brain power and not enough empowering their teammates. And so uh, we, we thought we could pack uh, knowledge and information people's heads and they'd come out good leaders. That's simply not the case. You have to have the experience of working with people and developing your self-awareness and your emotional qualities in order to become a good leader. You have the chance, of course, to work around a lot of new leaders. Do you think that you know people that are just getting started in leadership roles are aware of what you've just shared? No, I don't think so. I think there's too much in academia and also, frankly, in many of the first positions out of school, uh, like consulting and, and financial services, which put such a high premium on IQ that they don't realize the importance of honing your leadership skills through experience, through introspection, and through working closely with other people as a team leader or a member of a team. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So the idea of True North is a, a really big idea, and one way you attempt to describe it is with the words of William James, who said, I have often thought that the best way to define a man's character is to seek out the particular mental or moral attitude in which he felt himself most deeply and intensively active and alive. At such moments, there's a voice inside which speaks and says, this is the real me. Tell us about your personal experience in first finding True North. Well, first of all, that quote from James, uh, who actually was, it was referred to me by my uh, mentor, Warren Bennis, who's written so many wonderful books on leadership. Uh, 
Uh, I think that captures this is the real me, and that's the thing that so many people are trying so hard to impress people in the outside world rather than being themselves. And you can't be a good leader by trying to emulate someone else or uh, adopt a certain way of being, a certain leadership style. And so much of our leadership uh, uh, development programs are focused on that. Uh, mm. Uh, for me, it's been it was a long process of finding my true north. I went through a process as a young person of uh, wanting to become a leader. Uh, my father planted this idea that I could run a, a big organization back in my uh, very young years, age, as young as seven or eight. He was even naming large companies I could oh run. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and uh, it was kind of a heavy trip for a little kid. But uh, <laughs> then I started trying to get into leadership, and I ran for office seven times in high school and college and lost mm. all seven. So here I was. It was a real loser, and everyone's rejecting me. And mm. but people took me aside and said, Bill, you know, leadership is not about uh, uh, trying to get ahead or being so ambitious or being the, the smartest guy around. He said, to you, they said, you really need to uh, slow down and really get deeply interested in other people. And I think that captured the essence that I was just trying too hard. I was trying to be something different than I was. And I think if we can all just settle down, be ourselves, that's all anyone can ask for us. And if we can be the real me. And the good news is that uh, the thinking of major companies and leadership development programs and academic institutions like Harvard are coming around to this. This is what it's all about. And this is what we're trying to help people find is their true north. Very exciting, and, and when you think about it, probably a lot easier than the things that we're trying to do to develop leaders that uh, really aren't working for people. What, what, what was there a particular experience that facilitated this for you? And you mentioned your father. Well, it was that encounter of... with a group of people, college, actually seniors at uh, Georgia Tech, and I was there. Uh, that caused me to go back and put my own self-help development program uh, together and really focus on uh, what leadership was really all about and then mm -hmm. just uh, was fortunate enough to hold a number of leadership positions and so just uh, a lot of experience in leading people from a very, very young age. I had an opportunity to run an organization uh, that was starting the consumer microwave oven business back in 1970 through 78 and I was in my 20s and uh, early 30s. It was just a wonderful experience and uh, learning about leadership and all the challenges and doing it on the ground and getting some pretty good coaching from some people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure, that was very important as well. Well, it's easy to, for us to think uh, that someone else's success has come easy. I'm sure that you've probably encountered uh, people that have, have looked at you and, and thought that about you, yeah. um, that, that these folks' lives, for some reason, have just been one easy success story right after another. I was really struck by the challenges that the authentic leaders highlighted in the True North book, the first book, um, faced in their lives. The common thread throughout this book was that the leader's ability to reframe personal life events in new and meaningful ways this uh, provided purpose for their leadership. Would you share some examples from, from that first book that illustrate this idea of reframing? Sure. For True North, we did long, extensive interviews. I had two colleagues helping me, so we did about a third of the interviews of 125 leaders we identified as being both authentic and successful, ranging in age from 23 to 93. And uh, as we piled up 3,000 pages of transcripts, we weren't quite sure what we had, and we really started examining it more deeply, and we realized that everyone wanted to talk about their life story, about what was important in their life, what were the significant events, what were the people that shaped them, what were the things that shaped them, and that's what gave them the passion to lead. That's what formed the character and the basis for their leading. 
It was not uh, a series of common traits or characteristics. In fact, they were about as uncommon as you could possibly get. Uh, but these uh, events, which, and particularly the ones that were the most painful, uh, what we, we labeled crucibles. In fact, many, many of them did. Uh, a crucible in your life. Uh, in one case, a person's case, uh, uh, it was the shouting and screaming of his parents. His father left home and he never saw his father again. That He was age six and he had to become the man in the family. And Marilyn Carlson Nelson's case, she was the head of Carlson Companies. It was when her daughter Juliet was killed at 19 and uh, the impact mm-hmm. that had on her and rethinking life and leadership. And Dick Kovacevic's case, the CEO of Wells Fargo, former CEO, Dick uh, learned leadership in the corner grocery store about how you serve people and on the athletic field about needing a whole team to, to be there. Howard Schultz learned it uh, in the projects in, in Brooklyn before he founded Starbucks, and he thought his father was a failure, and he uh, well, he had this dream that he wanted to uh, to not just not be wealthy but to create an organization his father would be proud to work with at, and that's what he did in Starbucks. Now they have a couple hundred thousand employees all dedicated to this proposition. And Oprah Winfrey talked about being uh, uh, abused, physically mm-hmm. abused, as a young person by uh, members of her family, and how that taught her uh, what was really important was not trying to please other people, but just being who you are, just being who you are. And that's what she tries to do in all of her shows now, is empower other people to be who they are. Yeah. So these crucibles become critical. And, you know, you can go through all kinds of training programs until you get that out, until you deal with that. Until you address it, and you use the word reframe, until you reframe that experience, not as a victim like Oprah, Oprah very carefully reframed, not as a victim, but as an opportunity to make a difference. You know, Dan Vassella, CEO of Novartis, talked about having cancer, uh, excuse me, having uh, serious, very serious multiple sclerosis. He had two daughters, uh, sisters, he had a sister that died of cancer, and he was sick for much of his life, and how this led to him being a great physician and head of a great a pharmaceutical company, but the passion that came out of that so that he didn't see himself as a victim but as a learner and an overcomer. And I think that's so true. Even people you look at as wholly successful really have overcome great difficulties. And if they haven't, they probably won't be all that successful. So true. One of the things that I've found fascinating throughout my my life is you know, encountering people who grew up in families where some of these horrendous things have happened. Uh, and you see one sibling, one member of the family go off, reframe, and really become a great leader, and another person who plays the role of victim for the rest of their life. Right. It's, it's really fascinating, personal choice, how that plays into it. And You just captured it perfectly. How many people mm-hmm. do you know that are successful leaders that see themselves as victims? In fact, mm-hmm. some of them aggressively get ahead, and then they blow up in mid-career. Yeah. You wonder, why did this person blow up? What happened? And they never really dealt with those issues, you know? Yeah. Good good stuff. You you offer a model to find True North in the first book. Would you give us a high-level overview of the model and talk about how being in a True North group can help us do this important self-work? Well, as I started out by saying, it starts with processing your life story, really digging deep into that. There's no better way to do that with, than with a group of people. You can write about it in a journal. You can be introspective. But when you process a group of people, you get great insights about yourself that you wouldn't otherwise get just working on your own. Um, but it does start with understanding your life story. And then it starts with times you lost your way and uh, went off and uh, thinking about why did I lose my way? Why was I searching 
for money, fame, power. And in a sense, we all do that. We search the world's adulation and the success of uh, achievement of getting into a certain school or achieving a certain grade or being captain of your uh, football team or uh, soccer team. Uh, but it, uh, you, you process that and you move into really deeply exploring your crucible. If you can do that with other people, with a mentor, with a group of people, uh, it's invaluable. And then I think what's really important is we have a development model in True North which talks about gaining self-awareness and the importance to do that and how you do that by processing your experience, by being introspective and reflective, and finally, and perhaps most importantly, having a small group of peers around you that we call a true north group, a support group, if you will, who will be there for you in good times and bad, who really cares about you, and you care about them, and you share uh, at the deepest level uh, these personal stories, and you get feedback. And as many people say, you know, when I get feedback from my boss, I may or may not take it in, or I may defend myself, uh, but when I get the same thing from five people telling me something I don't want to hear, uh, it's pretty hard to deny it, and that can lead to the kind of permanent behavior change. But more importantly, it leads to the self-acceptance that's key to uh, to, to leadership. Yeah. Well, in, in uh, True North Groups, in, in the second book, you and Doug Baker outline some of the changes in our world and society that really suggest a need for True North Groups. Tell us about these and explain why social media is just not going to be the answer for us. Well, first of all, I love social media. I've got, you know, I think... I, tabbed up some 12, 13,000 people that I work with on social media. I use it, but for a very different purpose. It's, it's a way of communicating ideas and thoughts and articles and philosophies. It's not an intimate source. And even though some people would claim they uh, put things out on Facebook to 1,000 or 2,000 of their closest friends, I really doubt that you would <laughs> if you were facing, you just got fired from your job or you're facing a life-threatening illness or mm-hmm. had significant personal problems. Uh, but I think what a True North group response to is the sense of being part of society and a large organization, but being lonely in that society and not having a place to go, not having a place, people you can talk to. Uh, one of the people we worked with is Robert Putnam, Bob Putnam, who wrote the book Bowling Alone, and talked about how people aren't forming groups anymore, and they're basically alone, even though they're part of a large company organization, a large community organization, or nonprofit. Uh, but they feel very much... Uh, uh, where do I go to talk? Where, do I, where can I have honest conversations with people? And that's why we came up with the idea of forming True North Groups to respond to this, to give people a chance to really open up. And what we find is it's amazing. Even people with a very tough exterior are really craving for that place where they can be real or be themselves. And if you can just have that for an hour, an hour and a half a week, uh, it's amazing what it does to the rest of your life and opening you up to uh, opportunities of deep sharing and your sense of well-being that comes out of that, not feeling like I'm alone and I have to put on the armor, but I really have a deep sense of well-being. Yeah. Well, you began your True North group back in 1975, and you actually have three of those members, at least at the writing of the book, uh, from the original eight still in your group today. Are the, are the three still there? Oh, yeah, and not oh. only that, but uh, the newest member has been there 15 years, so I'd say we've been oh. together a long time. We just had yeah. an off-site to talk about that we want to take in new people because, you know, when you've been together 36 years, everyone gets a year older every year. But uh, (laughs) there's such a close bonding in the group. I think the people in the group say, we like to keep it like this, and we'll help other people start groups, but we don't necessarily want to change this group because uh, we have this wonderful opportunity. 
And uh, we also have a couples group that formed 28 years ago in 1983. My goodness. So you're part of two groups then? Two groups, yeah. Mm -hmm. The couples group meets uh, monthly and the men's group meets weekly. Every week, same place, 715 to 830. In fact, having a good place to meet where you can talk confidentially uh, is really helpful, uh, Mm -hmm. really essential. You can't do it in a restaurant uh, with waiters coming in and serving you all the time where you don't feel any sense of privacy. Well, I think you've probably already answered my question in a number of different ways, but is there anything else that you would say that you've not already shared that would really distinguish a true North group from other kinds of small groups that people might be a part of? You know, there's very much a strong small group movement in certain areas. Prayer groups, Bible groups have been very strong. The whole Alcoholics Anonymous 12-step movement has small groups in it uh, that are just very, very powerful. Uh, and, of course, lots of people have hiking groups and biking groups and social groups and cooking groups. Uh, the, the nice thing about True North Group is it really focuses without any particular affinity being required, not having to have a set of beliefs, a set of issues, a set of problems like a grief group, uh, but on people who really want to help develop themselves, who feel comfortable with each other, trust each other, and can really open up. And I think that's what distinguishes it. We find in our programs that... Harvard Business School, we've now had 1,600 people go through two North groups. It's amazing. That, that it is amazing, and the impact has been staggering, just so powerful, more powerful than anything we do in the classroom. Hmm. Why is that? Well, it's the first time a lot of people there, high-performing people, have a chance to really open up. We make sure our groups are very diverse. You might want, might want to not form such a diverse group on your, on your own, but in these groups, they're very diverse by race, by gender, by national origin, by anything else you can think of, religion, sexual preference, whatever. So you really learn that people are not all that much different. You may be from Africa and I may be from Bulgaria, but we really have a great deal in common as human beings. And that's a great learning that uh, we don't look at people by uh, the the outside, if you will, the superficial things, uh, see where they went to school or the color of their skin or where they come from or the accent who they are as real people. Yeah, what a great way to start building more community in our world. Well, there's a shift taking place in our beliefs today about uh, fundamental human motivation, and this is a shift that makes me kind of happy, actually. Um, talk to us about this shift and discuss how True North groups can help leaders respond to this more enlightened view. Well, Susan, we've been uh, misled, if you will, by the economists who told us that people are only motivated by their self-interest, uh, which boils down also typically to money. And that's why our society has put such a high value on money, or on celebrity, or on fame, uh, or on power, having power over other people. And if you look at government organizations, it's still a big criteria. But in, uh, in large organizations, for-profit, non-profit, uh, it just doesn't fly anymore. Uh, and I think what we're finding is that, uh, you know, we what we knew all along, Maslow taught us that, you know, people have a deep need for love and belonging, for intimacy, for uh, collegiality, for esteem, for confidence, respect, and, uh, of course, they need security and they need their physical needs taken care of. But ultimately, they want to be self-actualized. They want to say, hey, my life has meaning. Why am I here? Am I doing what's really important? Steve Jobs, in his famous Stanford 2005 graduate commencement address, captured this very well. He said, I go to the mirror every day and say, Steve, are you doing today what you really want to do with your life? Mm. Because life is short, and you don't have that much time. And if there are too many days when the answer is no, then you need to rethink what you're doing. I think that's a great technique. 
because if you're not happy with your life, then it's time to to make a change. And uh, there's no better way to go about that than to have a group of people around you where you can talk about that. Uh, But I do think that's definitely the way leadership thinking is going now, to, to, to look at what are people's real motivations and how do you empower people to step up and lead, even if they have no direct reports. And uh, I think this understanding of how people are motivated, this changing, or if you will, going back to to our roots is really critical. Yeah, that's great. There, there are a number of decisions and considerations that a group in the formation stages would really need to, to consider and think through. Can you discuss some of the more important considerations and describe some of the rich resources that your book offers? It's just the, the back of the book is just so wonderful uh, that walk groups through this stage in the process. Well, I appreciate your mentioning that. We have put it around a, a very conventional structure of forming uh, norming, creating norms of the group, storming, creating difficulties, and performing. But on the first phase, you know, it's bringing people together. Who do you want to be in your group? And we suggest getting together with two or three colleagues and deciding on a former group, and then actually putting down a list of characteristics of what you kind of people you'd like in the group. And we actually suggest the kinds of characteristics we found be useful. But I think each group can select their own. What are they looking for in the uh, friends and colleagues and people maybe they don't even know but have the characteristics they're looking for in their group so that you have that, you're building that chemistry, if you will. And I think that becomes really critical in the formation stage, uh, that groups do that and decide how we do want the group. And so we have a whole chapter and as you've looked, uh, a series of resources that describe how to go through that stage of forming and how to bring a group of people together. And frankly, maybe it won't be for everyone, so maybe you bring... 15 people together and only uh, six decide they want to do it. Great. You know, or we had actually brought about 15 together and wound up forming two groups mm-hmm. uh, originally. And that's fine. You know, I think you can work either way. Well, group norms, of course, are the next step in the, in the model that you just mentioned, and they are critically important to meeting the needs of, of the members of the group. You illustrate the power of norms in the book when you talk about the Young Presidents Organization. Um, could you tell us a little bit about this organization's use of norms and share some norms you feel are central to the success of a true North group? Sure. Let me let me just start with uh, this is the whole norming process, how you set norms. I think that is the first thing you do. In fact, in our groups at Harvard, we actually form the groups for people. Hmm. Uh, take, take a class of 60 and divide them up into 10 six-person groups. But uh, we, uh, we find that setting, agreeing on norms is the most important thing. So norms like confidentiality, openness, trust, honest feedback, having an honest conversation. And I would be very blunt and say, without confidentiality, these groups can't work. I'm not going to share with you and be open uh, if I don't trust you to keep the things I tell you confidential. So that becomes essential in what we're doing. So putting those norms here, we actually recommend uh, and have all students at Harvard Business School sign a contract. We recommend groups do that so everyone agrees on the same set of norms so there's no misunderstanding about that. YPO does a very similar thing in their forum, which says uh, over 85% of the members of Young Presidents Organization are part of a forum. It's an extremely effective process. They have very clear norms. They're actually very tough. Actually, you have to be, you have to have very tight attendance rules and uh, very clear rules about not dominating the group and things like that. And I think uh, that's one of the reasons YPO feels it's the most successful thing they've ever done hmm. in their organization, because here are a group of young presidents that don't have anyone to talk to. And now all of a sudden they have a group of people they can talk to, 
not at a superficial level, not to come together to make deals and, uh, you know, expand their business. In fact, they have a rule that they put that aside. They just talk about personal things. And some of the stories we share in the book is one person whose sister was murdered uh, and how the group helped him get through that process, that painful, terrible process. And if he hadn't had the group, he probably would have gone off and not handled that well at all. Well, in the natural stages of team development, the next stage, of course, is the storming stage. Uh, what are some of the more common challenges that would bring this on in a, in a true North group, and, and how do they cope? Well, all groups hit difficult times. You can't have a group of human beings together and have a meet over a period of time uh, without having that. I think, uh, you know, I mentioned the importance of adhering to the group's norms. That's critical. Uh, knowing some, some suitable boundaries. Uh, I mean, in our men's group, we've been together for 36 years. We talk about everything. We don't talk about sex. I mean, that's a boundary. You know, we just don't talk about that. But I think you may have a group member who tends to be very dominating or dog, uh, or maybe someone who's quite dogmatic in their point of views. And the group has to learn, how do you confront that? And so we give examples. Of how do you confront a dominant member or somebody that's uh, dogmatic in their views? Or someone who only stays in their head and doesn't go to their heart, doesn't talk about mm-hmm. real things, and wants to take everything back up to an intellectual thing. Here's what the world should do, or here's what I think, but not what I feel. Yeah. Uh, and uh, sometimes groups are unable to confront a problem member or someone who's very difficult for the group. So there are a number of storming problems, in addition to the ones I've mentioned, that uh, that are essential. But the important thing is that group members talk about these things and have a way of confronting them and not just let them fester, not to let them build up so they become bigger problems. Yeah. And I think that's what becomes... Uh, really important is that it can confront these things and it actually that allows the group to bond more closely so if you have a process where you can come together and talk about the difficulties you're having the group can become a lot stronger as a result uh and if it never had any problems at all that's great well um as we close bring our time to a close uh, today bill and this has just been really really great uh information and i hope folks will pursue uh participating or starting a a True North group. Can you tell us how your life might be different today if you had not had the advantage of the True North groups, the two groups, actually? Well, I can tell you lots of ways, uh, very, very personal ways. I can tell you the group. uh, It's been largely, uh, I think, I give them a big role in, in the success I've had in leadership. And there was a point in time when I was unhappy in my work at Honeywell, even though I was on the surface doing extremely well, but I didn't really have my heart and passion into it. And uh, I came to the group and presented that to them, and uh, they encouraged me to take another look at Medtronic, which I turned down for three times for a job because it was a smaller company, even though it was a big job there. And uh, I hope that opened the door to the 13 best years of my life. Or another example, when my uh, my wife Penny was diagnosed with breast cancer, and they helped me process that and deal with that, uh, and so that became uh, uh, very very effective in uh, in helping me. How do I, my wife and I come together, and how do I help her? How do I become a good support person, help her through this process? Well, the intimacy that uh, that comes from yeah. from such an experience is just um, beyond. 
I think what a lot of people have had the opportunity to experience, and you've really come across a way to facilitate that. And uh, we just want to thank you for taking the time to be with us today on Bookends and for um, helping us consider our own journey towards True North and, and perhaps using the process that you describe as a, as a way for us to get there. Thank, well, thank you, so Susan, much. and I hope everyone will form their group and uh, let us know how they're doing, and they will have a wonderful, meaningful experience from it. That's great. Well, I want to remind folks that to get a copy of your book, True North Groups, you can visit bkconnection.com. And we really didn't get into great detail, but as I mentioned a little earlier, there's just tremendous resources in the back for creating a group, uh, content to get the group going. Just It's a, it's a unbelievable, the resource that you've provided. So thanks again, uh, Bill, Bill George. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Well, all of our Bookends podcasts can be found on bookendsbookclub.net. Be sure you check out our resource blog for resources provided by authors that are featured on the program. Bookends is brought to you by The Team Approach. Our producer is John David Bowman. I'm Susan Stamm. Thanks for listening.